You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. We are able to detect what public transport vehicles users are on, whether it's bus, tram, train, and the actual scheduled vehicle. And with this data, we're able then to predict their mobility needs. Hello, I'm Marek Pawłowski, founder of MEX. That was John Fagan talking there about some of the things he's working on to be able to connect people's location and their movement into a more accurate picture of human behavior. So John is CTO at Axon Vibe, a really interesting company that's one of those organizations that's kind of working away in the background, developing the technology which is going to improve the user experience of public transport for companies like SBB, uh, that's the Swiss National Railway Company, famous for the punctuality of its trains, uh, and the MTA, the Mass Transit Authority in the, the New York metro area. Now, I'm going to tell you a bit more about John and Axon and how he came to be on the show. But I think I also need to give you a bit of context. Uh, So this episode was actually recorded several weeks ago, uh, as often the case with the podcast, because I try to keep a a few episodes ahead of of where we need to be with the publishing schedule. And obviously, quite a bit has changed since then. And in particular, we chat about some of the wonderful meetup groups and events like Sync the City, which John has either co-founded or he helps organize. And I'm sure, just like everyone else at the moment, uh, they're going to be adjusting their plans as best they can in response to this evolving situation on coronavirus and social distancing. Um, So while some of them that we talk about might be on pause for now, um, I'm still going to put links in the show notes to all of them because no doubt they're going to be returning better than ever as soon as it's safe to do so. I mean, how are you all doing with that? Um, I, I know we've got listeners all over the world for this show, and I suspect the situation, it's probably a bit different for everyone at the moment. Uh, there are definitely bits that I'm finding quite hard personally. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I've always enjoyed about this world of user experience and design is being involved with a community of, of like-minded people through things like conferences and, and events. You know, I've, I've met a lot of you through things like our Mex Dining Club get-togethers that we have in various places around the world. So obviously there's a sense of, of missing those kind of connections. But more than anything, I think there's also this sense of gratitude and admiration for how people are responding to what is a situation that clearly is is touching everyone uh, and unfortunately is likely to see everyone experiencing all kinds of different fears and and sadnesses in their lives. Now, it goes without saying that it's made me grateful, I mean, awed, really, by the most important work that's being done by those in the NHS and all of those critical services which keep daily life functioning. But specific to the community which a show like this reaches... I'm also impressed by the resilience and the adaptability and the willingness of people to share and to help others. And I'm guessing you're probably seeing a similar thing in your inboxes and your your feeds too. There's this way individuals are 
sharing tips to help others, is the way that companies are changing their practices, the way new groups are forming to address some of the more specific challenges. And and there are really too many to even come close to sharing them all. Um, But let me tell you about a a couple which spring to mind. Uh, You might remember Lada Gorlenko, Director of Experience Research at Smartsheet, who is on episode 63 of this podcast. Uh, Smartsheet has put together this whole resource hub where it's sharing its organizational learnings about things like remote working practices that they've been doing for a while, uh, as well as making available its own software tools and its templates to governments and companies specific to dealing with all of the different challenges that movement restrictions are, are throwing up. Then there's Default. Uh, Ford's design thinking organization, where there are several alumni speakers of our MEX conferences and, and the podcasts working there. And they led an incredibly rapid prototyping and scale to manufacturing effort to design and then put in place a production line for making up to a million face shields for frontline healthcare workers. And what impressed me here was that the collaborative design approach where they were pulling not only on Ford's automotive background, but also on knowledge from hairstylists and doctors and nurses to go from idea to turning out tens of thousands of these things within seven days. And last but not least, many of you will know Andrew Muirwood, a longtime MEX collaborator who's co-hosted MEX conferences with me in the past. Um, who's working with a bunch of colleagues to build meals for the NHS.com. And again, in a very short space of time, they've created a website uh, where anyone can go and make a donation, which goes directly to buying meals for frontline staff at 20 NHS hospitals uh, around the UK um, from local restaurants. Uh, And at the moment, they've already raised over £800,000 to ensure that doctors and nurses who might not otherwise be able to get a meal when they finish their shifts are going to be properly fed and and supported. So while there's no getting away from the fact these are are tough times, tough old times, um, there's also example after example of how in adversity we find new ways to thrive. Uh, I'll put links to all of those that I mentioned in the show notes, uh, and I'm sure you yourselves will find many more out there. But back to the the guest for this episode. So, as I mentioned, uh, John is CTO at Axon Vibe, uh, this company which is doing all kinds of clever things to interpret human behavior from smartphone data, uh, then turn those data into kind of triggers which can improve users' experience of public transport. And John's got a a long history with location-based services, which we talk about a bit. Now, any of you remember Multimap? pioneer of online mapping before things like Google Maps took over. Well, John was one of the early team members there prior to it being bought by Microsoft. The other thing that we talk about is Norwich uh, quite a bit. Actually, there's lots of Norwich chat, which probably needs a bit of an explanation. So for those of you who don't know the UK too well, Norwich is a city about two hours northeast of London, known for its history for its rather picturesque old streets and all the lovely countryside it's surrounded by. Uh, it's also John Lai's nearest sort of city centre and how we came to, to meet each other. Now what it's not really been, at least in the past when John first moved there, uh, is the kind of place which would spring to mind when you think of a thriving tech scene or design or, or innovation. But that's all 
quite different now in 2020. And really, it's due in no small part to John and the other wonderful folks that he's worked with on things like Sync Norwich, Sync the City, NordevCon, and Hot Source. These days, Norwich has become a hub of companies working across all parts of, of digital industry. Uh, it's got a, a thriving community there, which like constantly impresses me with the quality of the events and, and the support that it offers. And I mention it firstly because, I mean, it's just a good thing, I think, to be able to celebrate somewhere local to you that, that has such a quality of community, but also because I think it's a really good model for other smaller regional cities around the world uh, that can combine their histories and their quality of life and this improvement in communications technology to become hotbeds of innovation that probably wouldn't have been possible even 10 years ago. So we talk about that a bit. And John, being John, is modest about his role in it all. But suffice to say that for someone like me who moved to this part of the world eight years ago, uh, it's been pretty obvious how significant a role he's played in helping the tech community in Norwich thrive uh, and in helping me personally to be welcomed into that community. Anyway, I'll be back at the end. But for now, here's my chat with John Fagan. How did you come to be in Norwich and Norfolk in the first place? Ah, okay. Well, I wasn't too happy when I first came up here. It was, I thought it was a bit of a backwater. A lot of the reasons why a lot of people come up here is normally related to partner, and my, my wife's actually a Norfolk lass. And we just got back from living in Australia. My wife uh, decided to go back to uni. So I was working and living in London and seeing her on the weekend, and that didn't work too well. So in the end, I asked my boss, in London if I could live in Norwich and I sort of reluctantly came up here. One of the biggest attractions was the ability to buy a house. At the time I was looking to buy a small flat in London in Norwich, I could buy a house. So that uh, got me interested and then pretty much three months after buying the house and moving up here, my wife quit uni and I found myself stuck here with her but very quickly fell in love with knowledge. It's funny how different paths lead there, uh, although it does often seem that there's usually some sort of partner or family connection that, that draws people back to, to Norfolk or Norwich. I mean, I've heard that story quite a few times from people that I've met since I've moved here, at least, that often people will, say, grow up here and then move away and then end up coming back. But I mean, what, what sort of time period was that? And, and how do you compare the, the tech scene in Norwich then when you moved up to what we have now? Yeah, so that was around 2004, 2005. And I lived in Norwich for the first sort of four years and then I moved closer to the coast but I assumed there was nothing happening in tech in Norfolk and I was actually hot desking in uh initial well after when I moved to the coast I was hot desking in the in the in North Walsham where I was living and I found a guy called Tim O'Shea who was running a dot com uh a website from there called blurtit.com and I just couldn't believe there was a dot com operating from North Walsham. So he was the first tech person I met 
when I lived in London, I got involved with a bit of community stuff. So I, he, he introduced me to a couple of tech people. And then through uh, NCT, our baby group, I met uh, Ben Richies, who was working at Aviva. Gradually started discovering a few people. And then I thought, you know, started discussing with them about starting a meetup group. I mean, I came to it all a bit later than that. I suppose it was probably... So 2012, 2013, when I relocated to Norfolk and started to see some of the tech scene that was already established there. But, you know, if you flash forward to today, where we are with things like uh, the Sync the City event that you organize and Sync Norwich and all of the different meetup groups that are going on, it's it's kind of interesting. I guess I was keen to talk to you about it, being someone on the ground with that from an early stage, because I know a lot of the people listening to this show will know absolutely nothing about Norwich as a city, because like you say, it's, it's I suppose, always been, uh, hitherto, if you like, been a bit of a, a backwater. Uh, but now there is this thriving tech scene going on there. I mean, what, what do you credit that to? Would you think there was a particular turning point which enabled things like uh, these events and, and these meetup groups to really start to flourish? Yeah, I mean, when we first started Sync Norwich with uh, Paul Grenier, Juliana Mayer uh, and um, Seb and Stephen, Seb Butcher, we thought we'd have about 100 members signed up because we thought we knew around that many people. But within a few months, there was like 500 and then within six months there was a thousand and it just grew and grew so there wasn't at the time any kind of tech meetup there was hot source and north network but there was no tech meetup so suddenly we started drawing everyone out of uh kind of their backwater so to speak and i think there's a lot of people commuting into london working in digital start digital businesses aviva the main employer here and there was a couple of bigger tech companies such as Proxama at the moment at, at, that, at that time. And I think, I don't know, it just sort of started from the ground up, really, bringing people together, organizing monthly events and then conferences, particularly Paul Grenier's kind of led that and the conferences he's put on has attracted people outside Norfolk. And yeah, then certain events like Sync the City, I think it's just community are quite passionate and willing to give up their time and we've just discovered more and more there was already a lot happening but people weren't talking about it so we've discovered all these startups and now you're seeing more and more new ones being created so it's just kind of been a bit of a groundswell I would say and we're now no longer sort of losing people because in the early days of Sink Norwich pretty much every month we'd have one or two members leaving and saying they're moving down to London. But that doesn't happen too much anymore. And a lot of the businesses that have been created here are staying here and hiring locally. What does that mean for your particular business? Because day to day, you know, you have your role as CTO at Axon Vibe. And does that sort of community on the ground help support the work you do in that and, and do you find that that axon is able to get actively involved in that well it certainly helped me as a, a sort of organizer sync norwich in terms of my network and people i know to be able to hire people so originally when i worked for axon it was just me working from home in north Horsham and then hot desked at tim O'Shea's, uh, office and then we had some funding and were able to hire and i knew people so we ended up getting 
a couple of people on board and then we've got an office in Norwich and now we've got around 16 team members here. So it certainly helped on that side of things. Also, we actually in the early days when we had our own consumer app in the marketplace, we got a lot of early adopters here and we did a lot of testing, music testing, hall testing. We, we had people going out into Norwich Checking, you know, getting some testing done and concepts on our app out out in the street. So yeah, that helped. So I suppose we probably ought to to go back a bit and for the uninitiated, talk a bit about uh, what Axon Vibe is actually trying to achieve. Um, that, that's interesting because I've always known the organisation really mainly for the, uh, I guess that the back end and the professional service type stuff that that Axon Vibe does today. But I didn't realise that there was also a consumer facing part of it originally too. Yes, I mean, we Axon Vibe, well, the founder of Axon Vibe originally started a company called Indoxon, a mapping company, mainly on B2B mapping, so store finders. And he sold that to Google Maps in 2006. So uh, that was the first European team, a mapping team, uh, to be based in Zurich. So it's a Swiss-based startup at that time. And then he, he went on to... Fu- find uh, what was called Axon Active at the time, but now it's uh, span out Axon Vibe to explore more on the mapping side of things, particularly around citizen or customer behavior related to location. And in the early days, we had this kind of, I mean, we had this belief that with location data, there's a lot of us come from sort of mapping background as well, but location data is a great source of information really to understand human behavior. And then if you if you can use this data to predict behavior, you can, you know, improve efficiency of uh, moving around in the world. However, um, in the early days, we kind of went through a few iterations. Initially, we we're doing a personal assistant for business travelers. So you would share your location, share your calendar, and we would provide travel options to your meeting, uh, weather conditions, suggest to take an umbrella, etc. And we'd also look up news related to the people you're going to meet. So you're well informed when, when, you, when you go to that meetings. And then... We kind of pivoted to a certain degree into going for a full-on B2C uh, a mass consumer app. And uh, we, that's when we did a lot of testing in Norwich. It was a location-based social network, effectively. I always say it's very similar to the, the Snapchat maps UI you see in Snapchat these days, or it's Instagram on a map. But... During that time, we also had a side project with SBB, who are the national transport provider uh, in Switzerland, rail, and that suddenly became a priority. So we started using our technology to improve the communication to passengers. And one thing has led to another, and we're fully focused on transport now. So there's there's a lot to dig into there. But one thing I'm curious about before we, we start to get into a bit more about how, how that all works and the role that all those contextual data play and what you can deliver how did you come to be in that that role in the first place has location always been your thing um not really i mean i didn't in my my early i mean i didn't do too well at school so i basically flunked school and i spent the first i went to college and did okay but i basically went from that and spent 
my first five years of my life working in factories and roadside restaurants. And I was pretty happy with doing that. My main goal was to keep my Mark II Ford Escort on the road. And then I did a bit of traveling. And through that traveling, I kind of found myself in a job where I was doing some data input at the time. I wasn't ambitious at all, I mean, in my early days. And my career didn't really, well, it didn't start until I was 27. But when I was traveling, I got to do some data input. And that was inputting street names into, into a database. And that kind of triggered the start of it. And that was when I was, uh, that was in Namibia. And I ended up, that one month uh, job ended up being three years. So I got myself an office job and, yeah, started getting into mapping. A lot of it was around data capture. So it was actually backbreaking work. But I was quite good at it because I'd done, I'd worked in factories, packing factories. So I was used to doing repetitive work you know, week in, week out. And we also got to do a lot of field verification, which was quite fun, going into the Okavango area in northern uh, Namibia, doing ground truth. Yeah, so I, 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 I was there for like about six months and I sort of discovered I was in this thing called the GIS industry, Geographic Information Systems. And yeah. So, so you literally had that first-hand experience of actually being right on the front line of how, well, I guess in, in those days, how location data were created. I'm, I'm imagining a lot more of it is, is automated these days. But um, at that stage, th- th- this was literally, you know, the very front line of, of creating the data, which then went on to, to inform the maps. Yes, exactly. I mean, I used to go to the equivalent of the Ordnance Survey in Namibia every few days and get all their paper maps in their fireproof casing and bring it back and then I'd put it on a digitizing board and you would stand there and trace them effectively. All you know, I did that day in, day out and we had a full map of Namibia and we're digitizing all their farm boundaries for the whole country, which took months. Yeah, so I'm quite, yeah, it's quite good that I started from, you know, analog effectively and just that first phase of data capture that's that's pretty fascinating i mean how did that then carry through and inform what you went on to do with like multi-map for instance well i started you know i discovered this industry i was in and i looked it up and i thought i started getting a little bit ambitious let's say so I wanted to study formally, and my boss in Namibia at the time said he would fund me. You know, he said every three years he funds me for education. Every one year of education, he wants three years of commitment, and that was quite a big commitment if I wanted to do a degree. So I looked back at UK and discovered all these GIS degrees, and I ended up going back to to UK and actually doing a GIS degree. And while I was at uni, I, I guess my aha moment where I was really amazed uh, and I still, when I was online and I found a website called multimap.com and I put in a postcode and instantly appeared a digital map of my home street level. And I, I was just absolutely blown away by the simplicity of it and also the speed of it. You know, because you're coming from a GIS background where this industry tradition is like the traditional industry, which was 
very niche, required expert training using expensive data, you know, expensive software, which was complicated to use. And that and that's where the industry was at at that time. I mean, you had some consumer products in that sort of pre-internet era with Microsoft Streets and Trips, but that was still expensive. So this experience going to Multimap and putting in just a postcode into a single search box and the map appearing instantly uh, really kind of blew me away. And at that time also they had a hiring, we're hiring button and I clicked on that and yeah, and I ended up getting my dream job for, you know, with basically a hot new startup at that time in 2000 at multimap.com. I mean, Multimap was very well known in the late 1990s and mid half of the uh, noughties. Yeah, I mean, that that was the thing. I can remember that far back myself as well. And if you wanted directions somewhere, it was multi-map. This was pre-Google Maps. And it's. I think it's quite, I like the way you describe that as an aha moment when you're able to do something which we so much take for granted now of putting in a postcode and instantly, quickly seeing a map of that location. We do well to remember that actually that is for, for the human species as a whole, that is actually a relatively recent development that we can locate ourselves in time and space that that easily in the blink of an eye and that that's actually a pretty significant thing and that there was a moment not so long ago when that simply wasn't possible yeah exactly i mean the first thing i got to do at multimap they were very trusting sean Phelan, the ceo there and i got to my first job was loading aerial photographs so um it was all mapping base I and mean, when one of multi-map specialities was local maps so we would have the a to z map we have bartholomew's map and then i also loaded the ordnance survey land ranger uh, series and yeah i also uh, did all the data processing loading for aerial photos and they were high resolution 15 centimeter at the time and no one in the world had that level of higher resolution. One, because the data suppliers wouldn't want to give away this valuable data, but Sean managed to do a deal with the Geo Information Group, who were based in Cambridge at the time, um, to experiment with putting their data online. And this just blew people away. I mean, it also freaked people out. We went to a few exhibitions, uh, internet sort of exhibitions at the time, trade shows, consumer-based as well. And I used to just love demoing, demoing that someone to come on the stand and ask them their postcode. And, you know, you would show an image of their car outside their house, you know, such high resolution, it just uh, blew them away. So it's a reminder of a time when, you know, that kind of thing, as you say, for people was pretty, pretty mind-blowing to see and how far we've, we've come. Because of course, Multimap was then bought, right, by, by Microsoft. Yes. I remember the day, I mean, Google... Maps had their 15-year anniversary a few weeks ago, and I remember the day Google released Maps. I've been already tracking uh, Google, and they, they'd already experimented with a bit of mapping in their directory service, but I knew who was, that was a third-party supplier that were power, was powering that, so like someone like us. But then they released their own map, mapping interface, um, yeah, and that really changed everything. 
for the industry because at that point in time there was like the local national incumbent mapping provider everywhere you know France, Germany, UK, uh, Australia, New Zealand, US all had their main mapping provider. Multimap did both B2B and B2C so we're actually num you know number two or three in the world on the B2B because we had a lot of B2B customers and but yes a lot of the, uh, one of the things Google did is they allowed free access to their maps. And I remember the time I was working, I went on a pre-sales call with pre, uh, visitbritain.com and we're close to doing a deal with them to sell them maps to integrate into their website for 60,000 a year, which is kind of what we charge at that time. And they rang up the next day and said, oh, we saw Google this morning and you know they've offered it for free. And that kind of caused a lot of problems with all these national mapping providers. We're able, obviously, to compete on customer service, but Google are taking a hit of 500 million a year, because they're using the same data supplies as us, 500 million a year to to give away these free maps, because they still have to pay the data suppliers. Yeah, free can be a pretty disruptive move if you have the scale to, to pull it off, I guess. Um, I mean, was that one of the things which then prompted the the deal between Multimap and, and Microsoft? Yes. I mean, we were kind of, I guess, saved. Quite a few mapping companies ended up dying. Um, we were looking to sell, because we we had some shares from TeleWest, Telco's company. They were looking to sell that those shares. But in the end, it went for full acquisition. And Microsoft were get, getting hugely challenged by Google. And by acquiring Multimap, they would be number one overnight in terms of share in UK at least. So yeah, Microsoft ended up acquiring us. When you think about what was what you were capable of delivering as as an experience around location, you know, at, at that point in time when you have someone like a Microsoft buying Multimap, because clearly they could see, yeah, as Google could see, how important a role location was going to play in in people's lives and in the way they interacted with digital. When you think about where you were back then, you know, at the time that that, that deal with Microsoft was done, and then you compare to where you are now with Axon Vibe and the kind of things that you're working on, yeah, how how far have we come in terms of what kind of location-driven or context-driven experience that you're now able to imagine offering customers? We're still not far enough, to, if I'm going to be brutal, to a certain degree in terms of impacting consumers and society. If you go back uh, to the GIS sort of era, of which GIS is still used a lot, um, you know, it's but sort of the beliefs of the community, which was a niche community at that time, there was kind of this mantra that the GIS industry used to speak to the industry and say, look, 80% of your data is uh, geographic, so you should consider how mapping can be used to better communicate your data, but also analyze and find patterns. But really, GIS industry was constrained to planning departments in um, local authorities. So the, the, the dream of uh, the GI industry and cartographers and mappers was never really realized. And if you kind of look where we, what we've achieved in the sort of last, you know, since the late 90s, if I'm being kind of brutal, you know, also playing devil's advocate to a certain degree, we've just taken 
that GIS functionality that you get in an old school desktop app and you know, broken it down into single purpose apps um, put on mobile and web. But the principles are still there to a certain degree, you know, in terms of wayfinding, looking things up, orientating yourself, finding out where to go. But it's just, you know, mobile has made it a lot more accessible to do that. And there's been a lot more investment in coverage of data and, uh, you know, all forms of coverage, not just maps anymore, obviously aerial, but street view, etc. And um, mobile devices know where you are. So you don't need to tell these systems where you are anymore. So, yeah, that's kind of me playing devil's advocate. But obviously, the game has completely changed, you know, in terms of the ubiquity and the access and the utility of location-based services these days and where they've become a necessity for people. But it's not even that from a consumer's perspective. No longer is, because back in the day, GIS had its own software, had its own data formats, had its own database is only own ways to store data but now location is embedded into every database platform every programming language any engineer or designer that you kind of meet has experience with dealing with location data and mapping really it's very common um, so it, it has changed in that sense but now yeah it's everyone uses some kind of location-based app pretty much, you know, almost every day. Yeah, the, the scale of that I find pretty fascinating because there's, I guess when something is being used at such scale and with such ubiquity, I think there's got to be a knock-on effect from the, the, the design elements, the technical elements, which form that infrastructure, even if it's something which is, is just replicating things that existed, you know, in a much more sort of professional, expensive niche form previously, because it's been delivered at that much greater scale now, I think there's, it's likely that the, the design of those things, the way they're built, the kind of things that they're able to surface for people, uh, go on to have a, a much greater knock-on effect on how people are living day to day. I mean, do, do you think about that in terms of what you're building at Axon Vibe, uh, about how the, the structure of what you're creating you know, in the labs, in the office, might then go on to affect the relationship with people that people have with the physical places that they inhabit? Yes. I mean, this is kind of the challenge we're facing because, um, you know, we want to be our technology. I mean, our target right now is working public transport operators to enable them to not only continue operating their own services, but also manage additional mobility providers. So I'm sure you're aware of all the innovations happening, particularly around the last, uh, first mile, last mile with different mobility providers. They're called micro-mobility providers like e-bikes, e-scooters, etc., on the marketplace. So we want to work with public transport operators so they can connect, that they can provide passengers with a door-to-door -door solution uh, to, to move them from door-to-door, -door, not transit hub to transit hub. And, you know, we kind of say we want to build a sat-nav for public transport. And that's the experience you get with car navigation. You just put your destination in and go. That's our goal, that you just put your destination in and you go and you're able to move from A to B in the future, that will also incorporate autonomous vehicles and you will no longer need 
a uh, to own your own vehicle. So we're in. This is also what I love about working in the location and mapping industry. You know, for so many years because it's all around physical. You know, you provide digital experiences, a digital model of the real world. But then that individual needs to be able to navigate, use that digital information to navigate in the real world. And we, yeah, I mean that's one of the biggest challenges for us because it's it's harder than a sat nav for car because with, with a car, you a sat nav is basically represents the context of the individual as well. But on public transport, you're hopping and. You're hopping on and off multiple different vehicles, so to really know the contact text, where they are, and what they're doing, the information that you're sharing with them matches what's happening in the real world. <laughs> is is a、uh, yeah is kind of it's exactly what we do. Yeah, it, it's a great word that context.、Um, it's one that over the years of. Of doing our different Mex events and, and this podcast and, and all of the, the research and stuff that goes into it crops up time and time again in different areas, and we've sort of had a, a bit of a running joke going about. Well, it's it's kind of the, I guess the the solval that people seem to go to when they're talking about improving the experience or something. Where it's like, well, we we just need to understand more about people's context. And then the app will be able to figure it out and be able to serve up the the, the right kind of stuff to them, and, and everyone will have a, a great experience.、Uh, but what I really love about the stuff that you're doing is it sounds like you're actually getting very granular at Axon into the kind of things that can inform that context and how it is relevant to people's public transport experience. I mean, what are the kind of things that you're able to infer now? Today, with the kind of technology and the sensors that people have in their smartphones, and the kind of things that you're able to do to shape that experience off the back of what you're learning about the, their context. Well, I mean, I step back a little bit in terms of that. There are quite a few companies that are building mobile technology that sits on top of the location services that you already get in from the operating system of Android or iOS, and. These, I mean, a lot of the companies are basically, I would say, enabling the 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 users of those SDKs to provide traditional ways to communicate to, you, to to the users, and it's not really contextual, but they kind of talk about being contextual. So, a big USPs they do location tracking in a battery efficient manner, and we don't really talk about location tracking as such. You know, we convert location tracks into human behavior, and this is really around stops and moves when people dwell. Where are they dwelling? What kind of venue? And when they move, which which is really our main area of expertise, how are they moving? In particular, related to public transport. So, with this noisy and sporadic location data, because we unfortunately can't kill the battery for the user. We're, we are able to detect what public transport vehicles users are on, whether it's bus, tram, train, and the actual scheduled vehicle. And with this data, we're able then to predict their mobility needs.、Um, so that's kind of you know, it's not about location tracking; it's about human behaviour、uh, prediction, detection, and prediction. And then a lot of、um, providers talk about current location. We don't really talk about current location; we talk about user context. It's Related to our ability to predict, but it's where people are, 
how did they get there and where are they going next? You know, it's really understanding uh, their context. And then within that, we bring in the external context. So you've got the, the individual uh, user context around their physical situation before, now and after, and then bringing in the the state of the environment. And we call this kind of, con with these combined contexts, you can create contextual triggers. So that's for that right now, it's the public transport state. You know, we know that they're going to be potentially getting, going on their commute in the next hour and that train's delayed and we're able to inform them or they're arriving at a station and the train is being delayed. So we, we know the, the state of that. So we're able to deliver maybe unique experiences that, I mean, in location-based services, the coffee scenario is always used and it's a massive cliche, but I, I'd say I'm, I think we're delivering the best coffee use case in the location-based service markets where we experimented in, in Switzerland if a user had a delayed train and they're arriving at a station or they had an inconvenient interchange, like a long wait before their next change, we would deliver them a coffee voucher, free coffee QR code. And that was also based on the availability of, of uh, the vouchers that were allowed for that particular store. So you, that's like a whole contextual moment, so to speak. It's the fact that we predicted the users could be on their journey. They were on that journey. The journey was delayed. They like coffee. They're arriving at a station. There is the coffee shop at that station, and all the vouchers haven't been used up. So you deliver. That's like a contextual moment, which we're able to do. Yeah, I mean, that's where I suppose the beauty of the experience is very much in those details. And, and you're right. I mean, that has been the, the old cliche in location-based services and, and the, the potential of advertising around that for, for decades, for as long as I've been involved in the technology industry, the idea of, well, we can prompt you to go and you know visit this place for a coffee, tea, whatever. And I think Perhaps the reason that it has been a cliche or become a cliche is because it has been so badly done in the past. We just haven't been very good at actually detecting when that moment really is. And if anything, I think people have learned that it's not just about, are you close to a coffee shop? You know, that is one small part of the context, which is going to inform whether or not that genuinely is the moment in which a good experience would be to deliver that person a promotion, which gets them a free or a discounted cup of coffee. But if you can genuinely master those contextual moments in such a way that you really understand when that is, when that's appropriate, it has the potential to become a great experience. Yeah, I mean, we, we haven't done it yet, but we talk about turning negative passenger experiences where it's the passenger's fault but into a positive experience so just the simple fact that you've missed your train uh, or your bus and generally it could be the passenger's fault because they're too late arriving but you could you know deliver a message saying sorry you missed your train um it's 30 minutes next to to your next one why don't you grab a free coffee and relax um, and we actually, on that, those particular campaigns, the ones we did before with the delay train, we actually increased the basket size at the, uh, the kiosks. So there was like an average spend of five Swiss francs or something, which was most unexpected. But, it, you know, that is then the business model. However, you know, the, cus the passenger is quite happy about uh, how they've been treated. 
What are you learning from working in the real world with operators like SBB about what represents good design for the user with these experiences? Because it, it strikes me as you describe it that uh, although obviously you're trying to process a lot of complexity around the contextual information, that there must be a challenge there about not overloading the user with too many options and too many possibilities about what they might do next you know are you starting to get some sort of real world feedback on what the right balance is around those kind of recommendations i mean how we collaborate with our partners you know we got a lot better and better at it over the time so we generally i mean we released with sbb we released a new app to the marketplace january this year we're going to be doing another update in a few weeks and that app that we released we all felt proud of it. I mean, it didn't have all the features we want. We had to make some scope changes to hit the target date, but it was a combined effort with SBB and Axon. You know, we, with development and design coming from both sides. And, you know, our, our mission sort of at Axon is with users is to reduce friction and deliver moments of serendipity without compromising users' trust. And our vision is to create three more smiles, so uh, generate three more so- smiles for passengers a day. I guess in terms of reducing, that, that's kind of a priority. So the fact that we want to reduce friction is our main goal in terms of communication initially. So it's just making it easier to use the services that exist the way we're able to reduce the noise is because we know the individual behaviors of the user and we're delivering the information that's pertinent to the the journeys they're going to be doing. So it's similar to what we're doing in MTA. You know, the main goal is to reduce inconvenience related disruptions and don't want passengers to get to the station and realize there's disruption. Hopefully we can communicate to them, you know, while they're at work or home. So they've got more options to to make and also suggest alternatives. So so this is MTA in the, the States, in New York? Yes, in New York City, yeah. Uh, okay. Now, has that experience differed significantly from Switzerland? Yes, has. We made some mistakes, um, but we've kind of rectified those uh, in the last sort of two, three months. The Yeah, I mean, in terms of, again, f- focus on reducing friction and not you know, the delivering moments of serendipity is a bit more in the area of marketing. It's changing behaviors, actually delighting users, but reducing friction and informing uh, passengers at the right moment about any disruptions that may occur or everything's okay. It definitely was uh, a learning curve in terms of localizing our services for cities where there's, there's almost no schedule. It's high frequency services running all the time. And you know, like you, a bit like UK, um, outside London, uh, Switzerland's similar. You know, Switzerland's trains normally run on time. They're on fixed schedules. And we think of a vehicle normally around a train time. You know, so for me, it's like I, if, I, if I get the train in uh, from North Warsham, it's 6.11. And you may communicate to people like that. It's a 6.11. And you just want to know what's the 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 state is for that 611 train. But, you know, in places like uh, New York, you're just interested in the line, you know, because it's high frequency services, you know, there's services dispatching. So we we got some early critical feedback 
uh, in our beta, alpha, beta release, where they just thought it's so weird. We were telling them, you know, the 543 is delayed. They didn't know what, <laughs> that, you know, they wouldn't know if the F line has any disruptions. Yeah, I guess that's the, the difference perhaps between the sort of the urban high density mindset and the, the rural, more spread out kind of mindset. Yeah, and it's how people think about transport. It's still in, you know, even in the in the cities in sort of maybe Switzerland, UK, to a certain degree, you may still, particularly for suburban travel, you still think of a particular departure time. But departure times don't mean anything uh, in some cities. It's so we, we generally, yeah, so we have to change the communication. You alluded there, I think, to one of the things which is, has always kind of interested me about the, the, the role of uh, a CTO in bringing all of this together. You know, you were mentioning there that some of those aspects that you're trying to deliver on, the sort of the smiles, the serendipity, the changes to customer behavior are things which obviously involve other parts of an organization and other parts of a, uh, a partner organization that you're working with too. I mean, when do you feel that that relationship between you as the, the CTO and the designers and the user researchers and the marketeers that are all part of that process is at its most effective? You know, when, when do you feel that that machine is humming along nicely and that you're all pulling in the same direction? We've experimented quite a lot with uh, how we engage design over the years. You know, it's kind of classic team structures and communication lines. And particularly around team structures, it's whether you go for like feature teams or component teams. You could treat design as a component team, you know, as a as a domain of expertise. Within the organization, we adopt feature teams wherever possible, you know, so an autonomy within that team. And they t- a team takes care of, has all the skills and the uh, resources needed to deliver on a full feature end to end. When we sort of transitioned into sort of B to B to C, away from B to C, or you could even call it B to G to C because we're dealing with government institutions, these having design embedded in the feature teams wasn't going to really work because we needed to engage uh, these organizations. So we ended up coming up with a centralized approach. It's almost like an agency within the company. And we call that team actually serendipity team. So that's what they're known as uh, in the company. I mean, they do, they, they will embed their members in squads for a particular feature, but predominantly they work as a centralized function and they have to cross between the customer and also the, the teams here uh, within the company. And the idea of the serendipity, I mean, we haven't, I would say, 100% realized the vision of the serendipity team. It's very much focused on, it has uh, interface UX designers, uh, customer experience designers, and you know graphic designers. But the, the idea, the full vision of that team is that they would also have a technical architect, a data scientist, and a business expert in that team. And they are, you know, primarily collaborating very closely with our partners, such as SBB, MTA, to understand their particular domain, their needs, and how that translates to our product, because we need to build a scalable product. So we need to work out ways that the product can be adapted 
in a scalable way um, to meet the, the local environment and local conditions of that. So we kind of have, um, yeah, there's a bit of a process behind that, but, you know, it still adopts kind of agile principles and the, the serendipity team will have particular themes they're looking at, initiatives, and they'll communicate uh, with the rev- relevant product owners for a particular feature about that and until it gets to the point where you're nitty-gritty producing assets for developers. How do you feel about the planning for the, the future with that, that sort of scalability? I mean, particularly here, as, as you're describing it, I'm thinking here about all of the different possibilities around other transportation options that might emerge. Uh, you know, even if you look, I suppose, at the last, I don't know, maybe four or five years, there's been a bit of a change, at least within uh, cities, around the different options that people have for mobility with things like scooters emerging and short-term vehicle hire uh, becoming something which is more prevalent. Does that give you headaches in how you plan for the structure of a service like this and make sure that it is going to be scalable and, and future-proof to be able to adapt to those new models as they emerge? It does. We've, I mean, our first platform, really, until the last year, we managed to de-Swissify it. <laughs> Effectively, it was a Swiss platform that's focused on trains initially, and it really it was an SBB platform. So we spent uh, last year making it agnostic of public transport provider, just sort of in two areas. One in the journey planning, you know, so we don't build our own journey planning engines. We always use the journey planning engines provided by the public transport operator because you want the same, unless they ask for it to be replaced, but it's important that you have the same results in terms of, origin to destination, delays and everything, and same communication, whether it's a passenger's looking at the website, an app or whatever. So we built a abstraction layer above all, above all journey planning engines. We, it's, it's not, we call it the multimodal routing API, not the multimodal. I mean, that's kind of all, also part of our vision that we want the routing engine to return results that match the mood of the user and not give them a hundred different options so we've we've made it agnostic of journey planning api so it's now very easy for our teams in vietnam to write a plugin for a new provider and in order to do that we needed to build like some kind of global schema however you know we still have local variances that we a bit of custom work that we need to take into consideration yeah and then it yeah so that's what we do and then the ux on top of it just well basically everything the app on top of it just acts as normal you know so there's no special things that we need to do so it really enables us to plug and play to a certain degree and we'll just have to continue more in that vein normally we do things bespoke maybe two or three times to learn about that and then then we'll look at building a more scalable agnostic way to do that it's going to be hugely challenging i would say with the micro mobility market because there's, but there is a lot of conformity around, you know, like e-scooters, you know, docked, dockless, with bikes docked and dockless. But there's all different ways you unlock the vehicle, etc. We want to support one account, one payment. So it's just about doing, trying best to come up with standardized ways 
and then doing the hard work to integrate integrate the backend APIs. There's there's no standards in it, uh, so it's about hard work. Yeah, it feels like a slightly unenviable job, I think, at least for the next few years in being able to adapt to, to all of those different things as, as they emerge. I mean, one would imagine it would be something that would settle down after a while and the uh, the structure of those things would start to emerge and standardize a bit and make them easier. But I would guess it's going to be perhaps a bit of a wild west for a while to to see how how best you adapt and, and become scalable for, for each of those options as they they start to emerge and take hold. Yes, I mean, that is, but that's also part of our, I guess, leading uh, value proposition, particularly in Switzerland, not so much in New York, but we're you know, releasing a new app to the marketplace with SBB, which takes, integrates all these different modes, and that hasn't been done. So doing this hard work to integrate, to enable, I mean, it, it's the first time we're also dealing with hardware where within our app, we need to make sure you can unlock the vehicle. And there's all different ways to do that, you know, with QR codes, app side triggering, or whatever. So that has to work. But yeah, and then doing all the payment integration, the back end, so that you don't have to onboard again. So we just want to make it possible that you create one account and then you can use all these different mobility providers uh, within Switzerland. So, and that includes car share, you know, on-demand car share. Do you ever think about it in relation to good old Norwich and what the ideal transportation system would be for this part of the world that we share? I do. I, do. I mean... I, so my roles slightly changed. Well, my roles changed in this year at Axon. I, I mean, I'm CTO, but I'm more my day job's like product manager. For the last few years, I've been head of platform as well for the the location context platform. You know, it's the SDKs, it's the backend analytics that detect uh, behaviors. It's the con- we have a thing called the context engine. You know, it's how we communicate to users. Uh, so the the technologies that's used to to power the SDKs or the uh, white label app, but this this year now I'm switch I've switched to the B two B side and smart cities. So I've I kind of you know it's about how this data can be used to improve to help cities to improve the services they offer to citizens to provide equitable access to transport to know what is happening in their city in terms of all the mobility options and you know climate change and uh, net zero carbon uh, emissions is in there and really the story the main goals is to increase the the ease of use to do active miles so that's walking and cycling and Norwich would be it's a great little city to improve the walkability and um, cycling efficiencies within the city and also micro-mobilities, so e-scooters and e-bikes and deprioritize de- the car, you know, in terms of public right-of-way and space, you've got to prioritize space and, that, and at the moment the, the vehicle is takes the highest priority uh, over active miles and also micro-mobility and public transport to a certain degree. Obviously, you and I share an affinity for the place because we both happen to live close to it. But it does also strike me that somewhere like Norwich is a great 
case study for a bunch of other similar cities around the world, which are like important within their regions, but maybe less known internationally, that have a good quality of civic life as it is, that have uh, an environment which is quite conducive to those kind of active miles because of the the, the beauty of the places and the fact that you know, you've got quite a lot of motivated people there who want to, to walk and, and cycle. Uh, and it, it strikes me that, you know, it, it's possibly a good testbed for that that kind well, of thing. May, I haven't checked the latest, but Norwich is shortlisted for future of mobility funding from central governments. There's 90 million available. Um, they've done two rounds so far. I was just going to have a quick look. Yeah, they're, they're shortlisted with Manchester. And a few, there's five shortlisted to get access to this money to run experiments. Um, yeah, so Norwich is in the game to maybe be part of this future of mobility for DFT. That sounds like it's a whole new podcast episode in the making. If that comes through, we'll have to get yeah, yeah. back and, I, I mean, and I, revisit I asked, all this. Yeah, I, I haven't been involved at all, but I was, you know, uh, we met with the DFT, actually met with George Freeman at the House of Parliament a few weeks ago, but now he's been, you know, he's no longer in the position. But as a result, I discovered that way that Norwich are in the game. Yeah. So, it, and then I, yeah, I've I've found out who's leading that, and I definitely want to meet the person in Norfolk County Council to find out what's going on. But yeah, the other thing I wanted to ask you about while we're on the subject of the the fine city itself is we we talked earlier a little bit about Sync the City, which is this amazing uh, startup competition that you've been running for the last few years within Norwich. Um, firstly. Is it happening in 2020? Oh, yes, 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 it's happening. I mean, it has to happen because we've now got uh, sponsors, long-term sponsors. So Leeds Pride have sponsored it for three years, so they've done one year, and actually Greater Anglia has sponsored it for nine years. Oh, well, this is is great news. Um, I mean, I've been involved with it in a limited way myself in the past, but for those who have never experienced the joys of Sink the City, what's the the 22nd elevator pitch for it when you sign up what are you getting yourself involved in well it's i mean our flatline is build and launch a startup in 54 hours and it follows the the startup weekend format which is well known and there's the startup weekend runs all around the world but yeah a bunch of people get together pitch ideas and you know we choose the top 12 ideas based on audience votes and it's the 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 goal the uh, teams formed on the spot and those people have to go through the 54 hour process and build and launch their startup in that time and do a final five minute pitch at the end and hopefully win some prize money which is three thousand pounds for the winner and one thousand for the people's choice but this is everything this this is not about like I don't I don't like to call it a hackathon event because it takes all aspects into consideration, you know, so it's the business side, the design side, the technical side, the marketing, you have to do everything. You have to really validate your proposition, have a business model, do some designs, prototypes, get feedback, do market research, pivot. It's like, it's the perfect, you know, 50% of our attendees are from the universities and colleges, and then 50% professional. And it's just, you know, everyone gets to learn something. And you've, you've helped us mentor 
which appreciate and I'd say you need you know correct me wrongly even the mentors get a lot out of it because they're spending two and a half days with other fellow mentors and they're all industry leaders with their own expertise so it's I kind of regard it as a boot camp for Norwich where everyone gets together every once a year to upgrade their skills yeah I mean those are my my lasting memories of it when I came along and participated as one of the the mentors I mean as you say the firstly the the level of energy that is encapsulated within those 54 hours was just an amazing thing to witness you know that that process of accelerating all of the things which are required to make a startup fly into that very short period of time creates this wonderful swell of of energy around it and it was by far the most sort of energetic and enthusiastic event that I've been involved in of, of that nature, which was, was really great to see. Um, but as you say, the, 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 the focus there is there on making sure that that's a well-rounded proposition, that it isn't just about the technical aspect of it. I was blown away with the different teams that we saw, just how much they managed to achieve in making sure that what they brought forward as a proposition wasn't just a piece of whizzy tech or uh, a great sort of marketing story. It was well-rounded and it was something that was informed by some very guerrilla, very rapid user research, but user research that did keep those things pretty well grounded in reality so that they stood a much better chance of actually getting going as businesses uh, if they went forward from that very accelerated process. And that to me felt quite unusual compared to other versions of that sort of format that I've seen around the place, that focus on making sure that they were going to deliver good customer experiences at the end, right from the earliest stage of the idea, was something that I found really um, to be a, a really interesting characteristic of, of the Sync City format. That's what it's about. You know, it's the full full experience. So even if you're a professional and you've been an engineer, uh, a successful software engineer or designer, you, you'll get a lot out of it. And you may not even do any designing or software engineering, you know, because you're thrown in a team that's why I always say it's a little bit like uh, The Apprentice because The Apprentice has what I like is the two structures of the team. You have like the production team and the marketing team um, and you're thrown in with all these different skill sets that you'd never really work with in your normal day jobs mostly and you've got to do whatever's needed. And I was, I, I actually competed one year. I think that's the year you mentored and I uh, had one of my team members who was a DevOps engineer by trade but he was doing cold calling so he's well out his comfort zone he did you know two or three cold calls and then he asked can he no longer do that (laughs) (laughs) but but yeah it is it is holistic it is the whole experience it is intense um and it really is amazing what people achieve and you know we've had a couple of actual businesses spin out of it safe point being the most prominent one at the moment that are still going. They won a few years, a couple of years ago. But the real, the real game is learning, and really, it does force people outside their comfort zones. And you're in a safe environment to do that, and you've got all these great mentors to support them. And really, you know, people feel good afterwards. Well, and it anchors a place like Norwich, you know, a a regional city in the UK, with something that 
brings out the best in the tech community that's there and I think surfaces that to the rest of the world as well. And that, I think, is something that any other cities of that sort of scale or with those sort of ambitions could really learn from and I would encourage them to do because having seen it happen here in Norwich has, has been a really wonderful thing. But one thing I've, I've always been curious about with it because I think you're, you're being perhaps a, a bit modest about the amount of, of work and effort that it takes to make something like that happen. Like, why is it important to you? Because clearly this is something which, you know, must take a tremendous amount of effort on your part and the people that you work with on it. Why do you feel the need to do that, to, to make that commitment to the community each year? I mean, it's got a lot easier over the years, but it still is difficult. And I still, well, we all, you know, I'm very thankful for the effort from um, University of East Anglia, who, you know, we use their events team to sort out their logistics. And now we've created what we call the Bible, which has everything we need to do on it. But I don't know, I just like to, uh, you know, I do, you know, in the September, October, I do say, why do I do this to myself, you know, and, um, you know, because it can be pretty much working. I try and do a half an hour, like every evening, because I'm very strict about keeping it separate from my day job. So, I'll be have to do a little bit every evening. I I, know I just like to see people do well. That's all. Um, I love Norwich. Um, I like, yeah, I just like to see people do well and um, achieve things that they didn't think they could achieve. Simple as that. There's no other reason. Well, it's, it's a really wonderful thing to have in the community here and long may it continue, I say. But look, John, thanks very much indeed for taking the time to come on the show and, and talk about all of this and share some of the journey that you yourself have been on. It's been really fascinating for me to learn more about it. And, you know, I will look forward to revisiting it, especially if we get a chance to test bed any of these new things in, uh, in Norwich itself. Cool. Yeah, no, it's been good talking. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Well, quite a history there. I really enjoyed that, going back with John to those early days of online mapping, getting a bit of perspective on what might come next as well, and and what we really mean when we talk about those contextual improvements that might go on to enhance the user experience of location-based services in the future. Lots and lots of links and references came up in that conversation as well. And if you want to follow up on any of them, you can head over to the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com where I put them all down into a long list so that you've got them there all in one place on one page to go off and explore. Now, while you're there, this seems like as good a time as any to remind you that the full archive of Mech's podcasts, uh, over 70 of them now, is available to listen to. You know, at the moment, I think we're all having to find new ways to stay in touch with our communities of practice, to keep our skills up, our knowledge developing, while perhaps we can't connect with our peers in the same ways that we used to. Uh, so do feel free to dig into the archive, and I hope you'll find something uh, there which is of use to you. Uh, and obviously feel free to share it. You know, The best way to help others find all that stuff and see if it might be of use to them as well um, is just email the link to your friends and colleagues. Uh, send them the link to mobileuserexperience.com and let them know what's out there. Now, thankfully, one of the things which is 
unaffected by uh, all these movement restrictions uh, is recording new podcasts. We've always been set up to do them remotely. Uh, so rest assured, there are plenty more episodes of Mech's Design Talk to follow in the coming weeks. I'm also working on a few new things, which I hope will keep our community learning and sharing and, and staying in touch. And I'll keep you posted on those as they emerge through all the usual channels like our Mech's email newsletter, Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, just take a look at those show notes at mobileuserexperience.com if you're not already following Mechs, and you'll find links to all of the different social feeds there to, to make it easy. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Be well. Take care. Goodbye.